friends, welcome to Palin' Around, the official Your Geeky Gal Pop podcast. Here we'll be focusing on video games, fandom, pop culture, and how they all interact with the internet. My name is Caitlin, and joining me, as always, is one half of the cursed Mark Ruffalo <laughs> fan club, Jessica Cogswell. Hello, everyone. Now, we are down the other half of our, of our club today. Uh, Monty is... Not able to be here because of scheduling issues, um, but we love her and miss her very much. But we are joined by a very, very special guest. Um, the lovely Emma from Game Workers United is here with us. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So before we get started, Emma, um, I know you've been in a couple other shows, so kind of up to your discretion. But do you want to kind of tell us and folks a little about yourself um, and, you know, what you do with um game workers and all that yeah sure um so i mean the long and the short of it is i'm a game game developer in the uh, games industry uh i've been working in the industry for a few years um i've also been a labor and community organizer for you know about eight or so years now and so um i've been really involved with game workers unite over the last year in particular um helping kind of uh, train up new people in terms of how to organize and, uh, you know, just helping to shape the direction of the movement and the organization as a whole. You're doing incredible work. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so how are you doing today, Emma? <laughs> uh, I'm all right. You know, uh, came off an eight hour day at work, um, which was thankfully only eight hours instead of a typical 10 or 12. Um, but uh, yeah. And then, you know, woke up this morning, did organizing work and then, Went to actual work to pay the bills and then coming home to, you know, evangelize about labor in the games industry. <laughs> so pretty good. Oh my Heck gosh. yeah. That... I just got signed up for my work union today and I was very excited because I was like, damn, this is very appropriate that like it's all happening today. I was awesome. going to say, that's like a, that's a really neat coincidence. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I was stoked. Congrats on having an organizing campaign at work. Thank you. They're like hardcore too. They have been doing it for a long time and they know what they're doing. I'm excited to like start getting in there and like learning some stuff because awesome. it seems very cool. Yeah, there's nothing better than learning about it firsthand, honestly. Yeah, um, I am stoked. But so I guess we can just kind of hop into that from here. So um, Game Workers is kind of approaching that first, Um, I almost said university. That's not the correct word. Um, the first anniversary of your big um, GDC action and kind of where y'all started getting a lot of um, forward momentum. Um, so I guess what has this past year been like for GWU and um, what are you all kind of looking forward to and uh, planning for the next you know, year and just kind of going forward? Yeah, great question. Um, so, I mean, yeah, for folks who, who are maybe less familiar with Game Workers Unite, um, we were essentially kind of founded about a year ago, um, early 20, 2018, and um, it started as just a bunch of kind of, um, frankly, angry and um, pissed off, but uh, uh, game devs who wanted to kind of, you know, do something to change the industry. It felt like we had been stagnating in terms of, you know, having a continual cycle of layoffs and bad work conditions and nothing really happening to solve those problems. And so we kind of decided to get together. We had some direct action and things at GDC that caught a lot of press. And um, kind of ever since then, we've really spun out into this like larger international movement. Um, yeah. So, I mean, we've started with um, 
founding uh, several like local chapters and national chapters around the world. And um, as of today, about a, almost a year since our, our kind of initial start, um, we have 25 plus local and national chapters. We have actual established national unions for game workers, um, most notably in the United Kingdom, um, where game workers can actually sign up and get the protections of, uh, you know, the support and protections of a labor union. Um, and, uh, you know, beyond that, we've been doing all kinds of stuff around, you know, agitation and education in the industry, trying to raise the general kind of knowledge level in the industry about, um, not just conditions in la of labor, but also how we can work together to improve these things, um, be it through collective action, um, various direct means and, uh, things like unionization. Um, and so part of that has been definitely doing a lot of kind of, uh, public campaigning and messaging and stuff, but also more importantly, that community building on the local level and providing organizer training to people so they can have the tangible skills that like actually allow them to be empowered and help organize their fellow friends and coworkers um, in their studios and in their communities. That's absolutely incredible. Like t 25 chapters in a year. I feel like yeah, it's, uh... that's just a <laughs> massive number. Like that's just like the the amount that, like how much shit you would have to have together in order to do that in a year. That's just that's really staggering. That's amazing. It's it's um, and oh, yeah. then sorry. <laughs> oh no, I was just saying. GW weren't weren't or wasn't. Uh, I cannot even talk. <laughs> uh, weren't you guys just uh, recognized too by the AFL CIO? Yeah, that's right. Um, they kind of recently published, I believe, through Kotaku, an open letter essentially to game workers, um, and Game Workers Unite in general. Um, you know, calling on game workers to stand up and, and start organizing unions and um, demand a better, you know, seat at the table when it comes to uh, improving conditions in the industry and helping shape the direction of the industry and, you know, counteracting the influence of bosses and executives and things. For anybody listening at home to the AFL-CIO is the largest uh, labor organization in America. Right. It's essentially a federation of many different labor unions in the United States. Um and yeah, it, that was really uh, cool to see them kind of uh, making that kind of public statement of support for our industry. Um, and yeah, so that's just one of the nice things that's happened recently. Um, but of course, a lot has happened recently in terms of labor in the games industry that could be, you know, talked about at length. Absolutely. Yeah. So kind of hopping into that, um, since... What when did Telltale happen? Telltale <laughs> was in December, right? It might have been November, actually. Oh, it feels I, like yeah, see, a I while think, okay. ago now. Yeah, I can't. Everything happens like so fast and so slow simultaneously. Yeah. I have no idea <laughs> when anything is anymore. I feel that. But I feel like in the past, like what, like four or five months, there have been like so many high profile layoffs recently. Yeah. So I guess, um, how how does that? relate i guess to the conversation that's been shifting because it seems like for every one of these huge layoffs there's more and more people who are um kind of shifting their view mm -hmm. and being more pro union and pro labor but yet this stuff keeps happening on kind of like nastier and nastier scales so i guess like how how do those interact with each yeah, other yeah that's great um I mean, oh, I mean, this industry has always been kind of built on shifting sands. It's never been a particularly stable industry. It's it's a young one, ultimately, you know, only a couple decades old. And it, it really hasn't matured yet in terms of like job stability and the rights of labor and, um, you know, just all these kinds of things. Right. 
it's slowly trying to find its uh-huh. ground, but we still have these like cyclical layoffs happening all the time throughout the industry. It's super common. Um, and even though it feels like this last year in particular, it's it's caught the news more. I think that's mostly by effect of both the press um, focusing more on kind of the behind the scenes of game development and not just talking about uh, games that have shipped and products and reviews and things and really starting to really dig into what does it mean to work in the games industry and what is it like what are the stakes for people involved in the industry um and so i think that's really changed the conversation a lot and i think game developers as well have started maturing in terms of a labor force i think um part of that has happened by itself i think as a lot of people kind of age uh they start you know having different different wants and needs out of a career in the games industry they can't just you know, be in crunch mode, doing unpaid overtime all the time. Because at some point, people have kids, people have families and hobbies, and they have to, you know, take care of stuff that is beyond just making video games. And um, you just can't do that with with the the kind of common game developer lifestyle. And so I think people are starting to get fed up with kind of the the de facto kind of conditions of the industry. And so it's changed that conversation. But unfortunately, you know, that cycle of layoffs haven't really changed. Um, And frankly, so long as the direction of the industry and um, the quality of games and, you know, decisions made, as long as that's all controlled by executives who are thinking first and foremost about profits and, um, you know, paying out to shareholders instead of making stable, like, secure uh, positions and and studios available to to game workers. I mean, as, as long as that you know, stays the same, we're not going to see a change in that cycle of layoffs. Um, if, if, if executives can just staff up really fast and into a project and then lay them all off at the end, um, that kind of thing's always going to continue until we demand like a more stable and mature labor force that has certain rights and considerations and can't just be brushed aside when it's not immediately profitable. Um, and so unionization is just one piece of that, of course. But I think those conversations definitely go hand in hand, like you were saying. Yeah, so I guess that was my follow-up question is like, do you think that changing that conversation is enough? Because I know we kind of had this, like, not a debate, but we were just kind of struggling with it on our first episode. We were talking about the whole Rockstar Crunch situation and it was the whole, do we boycott the game? Do we not boycott the game? Does it hurt devs ultimately to do that? Like... Does it help if you're just supporting people who are talking about it? Like, what, I guess, how important is that conversation change? And, like, can it be leveraged to make those bigger changes? Yeah, so, I mean, um, everything always has to kind of first start with a change of culture and a change of conversation, right? People have to feel like it is safe to talk about labor conditions. It's safe to talk about... um mismanagement and bad executives and things like to make that not taboo which has only happened in the last year or two um that opens up so many people game workers and players alike um to being able to start working through these problems and finding solutions so it is important but the conversation alone won't accomplish anything you have to have actual organizing on the ground actual campaigns in your studios um actual training and empowerment for workers as they try to find their own way to solving some of these problems right 
Um, and so it has to always be this kind of like two-handed solution, like always working on the ground while also maintaining kind of a sort of trajectory and maturity in the conversation that we're having and as an industry and as a player base as well. Um, and you mentioned boycotts. Um, yeah, that's certainly something that has come up, you know, time and again. You know, with the, the telltale layoffs, um, people mentioned, you know, should we boycott, you know, whatever is released next um, because everyone was laid off? People were talking about it with Riot when, like, all the sexual assault things and and all of the kind of culture issues at Riot came to light. Um, people were like, should we be boycotting uh, League of Legends? And the same thing happened with Rockstar. And, you know, developers are split on this thing, but most people really just want folks to enjoy their game. And if you've worked your ass off, whether you were forced to or you, you know, you individually chose to do that, um, most most developers want people to play their games, right? They poured their heart and soul into that and sometimes blood, blood, sweat and tears. And so most people wouldn't really call for a boycott, but um, because at the end of the day, these things really can't change from public opinion alone and they can't change from individual purchasing habits these things always have to change with workers actually standing together supporting one another and demanding better conditions and better uh quality you know work in their studios and things um but it's important to have that solidarity with players of course in the public in general and that was something that i wanted to ask about um is how can players kind of show solidarity how can you know assuming that the person listening to this podcast right now is passionate about the subject. They've already um, maybe like signed a petition. Um, you know, and like how, what's the next step? Like, what would you do next? Yeah, that's great. Um, I mean, again, ultimately it's, it's really up to workers to kind of stand together and solve their own problems here through unionization and collective support. But, um, you know, if, if someone's a player and wants to, uh, you know, help the industry as, in whatever way they can, there are things they can do, you know, um, even if it's just a, a matter of um, staying educated and up to date on what's going on in the industry, what are the latest kind of uh, labor scandals and um, what are the situations in studios that you enjoy, like, don't just enjoy people's product, but also enjoy like knowing about the people and knowing about the process of game development and like really learning about the reality of the industry that makes these games that are so important to people. And then, you know, staying up to date on, yeah, kind of current events and things in the industry, sharing that with like fellow players and like the communities that people um, play in. Right. I think just helping share that information goes a really long way and making sure that in general, the player base is becoming more educated and becoming more aware of the problems that face game developers, um, because that can that can be really helpful to kind of have that conversation spreading not just within game developer circles, but you know, in player bases in general. Uh, to make it common knowledge is to make it you know less and less taboo as a subject. Yeah, I really like that you brought up um, the points about it being kind of a, a taboo subject and the kind of fear of bringing it up because I think that that's something that people don't necessarily think about is how scary it is to have those conversations. Um, we live in a society right now where I feel like when it comes to labor, we have this mentality of like, well, if you like it, if you're passionate about it, you'll do it constantly and not complain. Yeah. Um, and like you said, I mean, that's not the reality of it. People, people have lives outside of that. And 
the current state of games is just really dehumanizing. Yeah. So. And, and you know, I mean, most people who work in the games industry are incredibly passionate, right? Most of us really love video games. We are in this industry for a reason. Like, we accept the abnormally low pay for the tech industry. We accept the bad, like, working hours and conditions, right? We We put up with a lot of things because we care about the industry and we care about making games that we all want to play, right? And, um... But we have to make sure to like make sure that our our passion that we bring to our work isn't being used as a tool to exploit us at the same time. You know, keep that passion real and that passion safe and use it to fuel your work. But don't let a boss use the language of passion or the language of family um, to manipulate you into overworking yourself or hurting, you know, your fellow coworkers and things. It's really important to start unlearning some of these things and becoming a little bit more aware of how that kind of language can be used to, you know, manipulate people, especially folks who are really new and young to the industry. Those folks, you know, just come out of like college or whatever, get their first job and they're willing to do anything, right? Even if it's meaning like take literal, like, like low income poverty wages in really expensive cities. Um, And yeah, unfortunately that kind of stuff makes the industry really inaccessible to people who don't have certain like uh, financial cushions or safety nets or family to rely on or all sorts of things. So yeah, it's a big kind of subject, but uh, it's important for people to kind of work through those, those feelings about passion. Yeah. I mean, that was one thing I just remember hearing constantly after telltale, which to make all of us like really realize how fast time is going. That was September. Holy cow. That was Are the, you fucking kidding? Yeah, that was the like oh. I looked it up because I was like, I think it was a little earlier because it was in September and then a few months later in what November was the Red Dead stuff. Right. Because there was a few months between. Oh, the two you're of totally them. right. You're um right. and like I saw that and I was like, holy right. shit. <laughs> yeah. But like I just I remember reading stuff from like Telltale and then even a few months later from um different Rockstar employees talking about like how scared people were to be like, you know, like it it's it just that whole mentality of like utilizing your someone's passion to exploit them it's Mm -hmm. just it's mm, it's so gross it's so messed up and like like you said i mean a lot of the people who are working are young they're just trying to prove themselves they don't want to complain they don't want to you know make it harder than it already is to break in just yeah yeah. i also really like how you did bring up the fact that so many game studios are in incredibly expensive areas to live because i feel like that's something that's also overlooked i've seen um people kind of combat what game devs make um by saying like oh it's actually it's really i mean if you look at like the median salary in america of like you know 30 something thousand dollars it's actually above that like it's not bad like yeah but when you're living in san francisco or seattle or la uh, like that isn't sustainable right and you also have to think about like the average or median salary also kind of like kind of uh, sweeps under the rug a huge amount of people who are maybe not full-time salary employees, but hourly or contractor or, you know, mislabeled uh, independent freelancers, you know, a lot of like QA people, community community management, um, people in marketing and things. Um, so many people make absolutely nothing. Um, I mean, all, all told, my current job is $13 an hour and I'm living in Southern California where I can work 40 hours a week, even, you know what, even during crunch weeks where we're working above 40 hours a week and I'm getting, you know, a little extra from overtime, 
that still isn't enough to make rent and make, you know, my kind of monthly minimum bill kind of costs, right? It It's just, it's absurd. It, I have to, you know, do work outside of that just to make buy. Um, and, and yeah, so. It's up here, like I'm right outside San Francisco mm. and it's like people have jokes about like, working two jobs like because you you, like you you leave one and you go to the other because that's the only way that you could afford to live here to do the thing that you like it's 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 a lot well and i was horrified when the when the activision stuff was happening because jessica's husband actually like did the you know like the basic bare bones math to figure out like how much those bonuses and stuff could have covered in salaries yeah. for folk. And the fact that his math showed that it was like thirty thousand mm-hmm. dollars for the average, I was like, Are you fucking kidding? Like I was like, that cannot be right for all of these like highly specialized workers. You're only paying them thirty thousand, which I mean like you have a good point too that there's a lot of like kind of fuckery within that. But mm-hmm. it's absolutely wild. Well, it's like somebody, and what's so funny is this was on, oh God, I don't remember what article it was. It might have even been a YouTube video, but I was like looking at some stuff that was like trying to like counter the unionization of game, the games industry, which is just a fucking mess. Um, but there was one that was like, oh, if you think about it, the CEO is only making 300 times like what one employee makes. And that only was like, 300. that was supposed to be something that would like be good. Like that was. <laughs> And I was just blown away. I was like, so you're saying one person is worth 300 people who are actually going in there and making the product. Okay. <laughs> There's no way. There's no way that the work that someone like Bobby Kotick, just for example, is more valuable, both in terms of real dollar value, in terms of revenue to the company, um, but also in terms of like cultural value and quality of the products made value. There's no way the value he, he brings in his position outweighs even just one single person in the company you could pick at random let alone you know 800 uh workers who i'm sure were doing wonderful quality work and were just cut because you know the company was profitable and they had record revenue but they weren't record revenue enough for the shareholders so they cut them so their stocks could go up nine percent right um it's just it's it's just disgusting. It's, it's disgusting is what yeah. it is. It's horrific. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and so on this topic, kind of, I was wondering if I feel like there's a lot of confusion, uh, purposefully, I think, about what it is that like C-suite folks in companies yeah. do. <laughs> um, c- could you get because I don't really know. Sure. Still. Um, yeah. Do you have insight into that? Because I. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, you are like most of the population, right? Like, um, uh, most people don't walk around understanding the intricacies of, you know, business management and the relationships between, like, public shareholding companies and, like, their executive class and all that stuff. So that's totally okay. Um, I I mean, to put it really simply, essentially, uh, like, just to use, uh, you know, Activision Blizzard as an example, right? They are a publicly held and traded company. What that means is they have the ownership of the company distributed up amongst what are known as shareholders, which each person has a certain amount of kind of shares of the company, which means a certain amount of like control over the piece of like their piece of the pie, right? 
Um, as opposed to, like, say, a private company where there are no shareholders. Um, it's privately held, so there's not this outside interest in making and extracting profits. So a public company uh, with shareholders, um, like Activision Blizzard, they have, you know, a board of directors that kind of make calls and represent the direction of the company from the side of the shareholders. And then there's, you know, your C-suite, like your your CEO, your CFO, CCO, um, those kinds of positions. That's what, like, Bobby Kotick is. Um, and they are kind of, you know, uh, typically supposed to work very much in tandem with shareholders, right? The problem with that, and this is, like, fundamental systems design, so, like, um, you know, for any game developer who's interested in hearing about this, like, the basic, like, wants and needs of shareholders and executives like Bobby Kotick are all about extracting profit. They're not about creating stability. They're not about creating quality. The single thing that CEOs and CFOs are responsible for is for creating the most profit for their shareholders. And sometimes that means to create a, a little spike in the profits for the shareholders, you lay off 800 people, the shareholders, shareholders have more confidence, people buy a bunch of stock, your stock goes up 9%. Um, in value. And that's just the basics of it. Even though in the long term, that means the company loses all kind of, you know, talent. There's a big amount of brain drain going on from the company because of that. Um, people who could have, you know, built whole careers and dedicate their lives to it. Um, and those people are just gone for the immediate, like, well, this year we just want to make a little bit more money for the fiscal calendar year. And so we're going to cut, you know, 8% of our workforce to have a 9% boost in our in our stock value. And I mean that's kind of the down low of it. Like what they do for a company is create value for shareholders in the short term, not about the long term. And that's pretty much the job that a CEO has in a public company like Activision Blizzard. And it's mind-blowing to think too. It's like aside from just like just the numbers and like the quality of the product, like taking the products, the numbers, everything out of it. Like just I can you like whether you're the person who was let go or you're somebody who's still at that company, like the morale. Yeah. Like that the drain, like how you feel about your job, how you feel about your career, how you feel about the company that you essentially like represent and are a part of. Like yeah. I just can't imagine continuing on with that, like feeling like that instability and, and just kind of having that like that I guess shaken faith. Yeah. You know what I mean? It creates a total disruption in the studio and breaks culture and, you know, social relationships and that ripples out in ways that you can't really easily track financially, but it does have financial impacts and quality impacts on the company, right? Um, when you have like huge reductions from departments or entire departments that were supporting um being cut entirely and things like that. Um it's and it's so rare that like a mass layoff like that has positive effects on a company long term. It's always about either, you know, being in the deep in the red and hard choices have to be made. And sometimes that is the case with layoffs. But in, certainly in the case of Activision Blizzard, that was not the case. Um, they were rolling in record revenue, which Bobby Kotick bragged about in the in the in the shareholder call. And it was just about creating some short-term profits and that's all that was about you know so it, it's it's really tough um you know a lot of these layoffs do come from a, a sense of necessity you know companies going under and things like that like that just is a reality of the world but 
Yeah, when it's just about flipping a quick profit. That's really disgusting, honestly. Yeah, well, and so then it's it's just greed, right? Like, there's no... Because it's yeah. not an investment in the company. It's not about longevity or doing any kind of industry shuffling or, like, infrastructure, right? Like, it's just right. making more money to make more money for people who have and money. And the money saved and the efficiencies made and the profits generated um, from the layoff of that 800 people from Activision Blizzard that's not going to come back to the workers in any way. That's not going to filter back into the quality of the company or the conditions of the company or the payout to workers. It's all just being funneled straight to the CEO, straight to the CFO, straight to the shareholders and the board of directors. And that's just the fact of it. And it's just, yeah, it's it's really hard to grapple with this stuff sometimes because the scale of it is really messed up. And yeah... I mean, there's a reason why, you know, uh, boards of directors and shareholders pay their CEO class so well, right? It keeps them in line and keeps them focused on making those quick returns for the shareholders at the expense of workers. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's just kind of the basic dynamic. It's the inherent kind of systems design of a publicly traded company like Activision Blizzard. Yo, capitalism is bad. <laughs> um yeah okay so i guess kind of going off of that so y'all just recently had an action um which was a petition to fire bobby kotick um so i guess i kind of wanted to talk a little bit about that because i saw um i covered it a little bit because i got a press release from y'all about it but there were some weird takes online about like if it was worth doing and like if it was going to have any effect or like that i saw one person who was like Unions should be working to protect all jobs. And I was like, what? It was yeah. like, they were like, they shouldn't be focused on firing people. <laughs> and I was like, you have utterly missed the point. Like, I'm uneducated on business, but you have completely missed the point. There's here. so much to un unpack in all of that you just said. Yeah. 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 And so I guess I wanted to use this as a space to unpack some of that <laughs> with someone who knows about sure. it because. Like, I covered it and figured it was, you know, I signed it. Disclosure, I guess. I don't want my ethics to be in question here. Um, I also that's a signed it. Thing. <laughs> um, yeah, please, let's just close our support so people don't get mad at us. Um, they will anyway, it's fine. Um, but, like, clearly y'all wouldn't have done the action if you didn't think it was going to matter. But, like, I guess I'm interested in the process of that and, like, what the thinking was and how um these actions are kind of decided upon and then you know the specifics of that one as far as like what kind of results you're hoping to see and if it do you think it's actually going to like change anything and that kind of stuff yeah so um i guess just kind of up front for folks who maybe aren't aware about this um uh a a a, a, a group of activision blizzard workers um both the, some who faced the layoffs and some who made the cut um, got together and through the platform and collective voice of Game Workers Unite have uh, essentially launched this petition um, calling on people to sign and share it in solidarity um, in order to fire Bobby Kotick, the CEO of Activision Blizzard. Um, the main kind of reason for that being that, you know, um, he's making about $30 million a year while firing 800 million or I mean, 800 people from the workforce um, 
and and bragging about record revenue uh you know to his shareholders while in the next breath you know yeah laying off 800 people right and having also given uh the new CEO, CFO a 15 million dollar uh bonus just for changing his title um and that was just a couple of weeks before the layoffs happened so it's it's not just a matter of this guy being um you know bad for workers and bad for Activision Blizzard creatively and in terms of the quality of the products but also in terms of just the f- like fragrant the like sorry the like kind of like um just like frankly incredibly disgusting uh behavior and execution that he exhibited around the layoffs um yeah it's just he totally mishandled it and the execution of it has been terrible across the board and he's often been a huge drain on the company and so Activision Blizzard workers are fed up and wanted to call on the community, fellow developers, and their fellow workers at Activision Blizzard to um, raise their voice collectively to demand that he uh, be removed as CEO. So now that, I mean, last I checked on it, it's, um, you know, somewhere around 6,500 um, signatures, um, approaching 7,000. And there's been a huge kind of conversation uh, online and, you know, kind of offline about you know the purpose of the petition and what can it really accomplish and is this really the right kind of thing for a a labor movement to be uh, engaging with and there's a lot to unpack in there really um i could probably (laughs) write you like a a two-hour lecture about it but um i mean so like you mentioned um some folks have said you know uh, a labor union and labor movements in general should not be in the business of calling for the reduction of executive pay or for the firing of exec- executives and things like that. Um, and what I would say to those people is that, frankly, the entire history of labor organizing in the labor like movement since like the 1800s has always been an inherent struggle between workers and their executives and their employers, right? Um, and sometimes, and almost always, um, that includes a level of hostility between the rank-and-file workers and the employers. And there's a long, long history of, you know, people uh, pushing uh, CEOs and things out of the company or uh, pressuring executives to cut their pay, um, even if it's symbolic, but like cutting their pay down to a more reasonable level. There's no reason why Bobby Kotick deserves 300 times the amount of the average Activision Blizzard worker, especially when he clearly doesn't give a shit about the company or the quality of the games that they make. And uh, so to them, I would say uh, the entire history of labor and labor organizing has included things like this before. This is not unfounded or out of line. It is very typical and very historically grounded. Um, to people who think that this is a poor use of resources, I've seen that, you know, uh, come up in the certain discussions. People say, well, a union should be focusing on organizing workers and not wasting their time with th- in resources with things like petitions, right? Because petitions, you know, they're not as tangible. Um, you, it doesn't really have a concrete outcome. And to that, I would say, I agree with you. <laughs> um, the good news is this petition takes up no time, very little resources. And the like 99.9% of what Game Workers Unite does is actively organize workers in dozens and dozens of studios across multiple continents 
constantly providing organizer training and educating workers so they can empower themselves and organize their studios in a tangible way. This is just one strategy and one tool of many that workers have on their side. Um, and ultimately, the power of the petition is not in, you know, a certain number of people signing on and suddenly Bobby Kotick magically has to step down, right? That's not how any of this works. But what the power of the petition is, is it creates a conversation, you know? Um, it gets people agitated and riled up. It gets people thinking critically and starting to question, like, does he really deserve 300 times what the average Activision Blizzard worker makes? Is that acceptable? Is it acceptable that this guy is making $30 million a year plus a little extra and giving $15 million bonuses to his friends when he's cutting 800 people from their ability to pay rent and having people to move and pull kids out of school and all these things? Like, is that acceptable? Are we going to take this? And even if a petition doesn't really have a lot of teeth, it gets that conversation going and it gets people involved. And even if people, all they do is, you know, click one button and sign on to the petition, getting people to make that first little step, that first tangible little true action taking in, in this direction towards unionization and supporting workers, that's valuable in and of itself. Even if nothing else comes from it, that little bit of momentum, that little boost of inertia, that alone is worth its, you know, just mountains and mountains of gold um, that is so valuable. And, you know, another thing, like the most important thing really is we've had so many Activision Blizzard workers coming out of the woodwork seeking support and um, wanting to help organize with their fellow coworkers, people wanting to learn about these conditions and how to better improve, you know, uh, their stake at work. And so, so many wonderful things come out of this that aren't maybe so clear when you look at it just from, you know, there's a link going around Twitter maybe, right? And you see some rhetoric about it. But the benefits from this thing, even if nothing truly comes of it, are incredibly valuable and frankly more valuable than even uh, Bobby Kotick stepping down. Because like, kind of like you indicated and like how I discussed, like the role of a CEO is to you know, squeeze profits out of workers for the sake of the shareholders. That's just the nature of it. So even if Bobby Kotick is kicked out, they're going to replace him with some other wealthy guy who doesn't give a shit about his workers. But this is providing a moment. It's providing a litmus test for the industry. It's testing what kind of levels of support and solidarity do we have? What happens when we try to engage the community in this critical kind of discussion? Do they show up for it? Do they have the patience for it? Are they interested in talking about these conditions and these situations in the industry? It's it's doing so much, and it's it's really not visible what those things are doing or accomplishing. But for organizers and for people trying to um, feel out the industry and you know find a path forward, it's actually providing a ton of information, and it's been a massive success in that way. Um, even if nothing comes of it in terms of the actual demand to fire Bobby Kotick, which, of course, we all still support because he's a jerk and he's been ruining Activision Blizzard for decades. Yeah, I've definitely gotten that vibe. But I mean, that part, that last part really, really makes sense to me because even I think it was yesterday I was discussing with one of our peers in our Discord, our other Discord, the game, the piece that I wrote about that petition has done the most numbers on my site ever. Um, 
and I didn't have any, like, I got a ton of retweets and stuff on it, but no one said anything shitty. And I was really surprised. And my peer was kind of saying, like, yeah, I've been looking around, too, and it just kind of seems like people are more willing to engage with this than they have been ever. And there's now starting to be, like, numbers to kind of back it up, it seems like, which is really cool and something I wasn't expecting to happen so quickly. Yeah. Um, I mean, even just the nature of seeing mostly just neutral or positive support, that's a valuable thing to come out of this. Um, just giving a chance for people to look around the room and be like, who's in favor of this kind of thing? Who's open to talking about these things? Who's ready to have these conversations and start doing something to solve these problems? Um, that alone is so valuable. And so it's been really interesting to see this play out over the course of the last week. Well, and I think on the absolute smallest level, too, it's like everybody can relate to that feeling of like having somebody in your corner. You know what I mean? Like just like how how motivating that is and how that can really keep you going when nothing else can. And like this is, you know, six to seven thousand people who are all backing this movement, who are all together and who have that solidarity that you mentioned. And it's it's incredible. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's been really interesting to see that take off. and. Yeah, who knows what comes of it. Um, you know, we have plans to uh, deliver the petition to Activision Blizzard and things. And, um, you know, we'll see what happens after that. But um, I think the level of community building and solidarity building um, that has happened is already, it's been so wonderful to see. And yeah, I think you're right. Um, I think a lot of people just want to see these things voiced, you know. They want to see someone standing up and saying this stuff and speaking truth to that power. Um, and this is just one of the many ways we are able to do that. Um, and yeah, I think one of the other examples y'all mentioned of kind of like things people have been saying is like, um, unions should be in the business of making sure no one gets fired. Um, that's including bosses, which, um, so I mean, there's kind of two things with that, that I would have a little bit of feedback on one like I mentioned before, all labor organizing and all labor movements have been ultimately about acknowledging, understanding, analyzing, and then organizing around the fact that inherently the interests of workers and the interests of our employers are different. They want to create profits and extract resources and profits and value from our labor, and we want to make a freaking living and we want to make quality games, but you know, there's other things going on that the employers are pushing for. And so it's always been a, an inherent struggle between working people and, and our bosses. And if you don't acknowledge that, you can't really have a critical understanding of how labor functions in modern society. And that's essential to, you know, identifying core problems in the workplace and figuring out solutions to fix them. And then secondly, um, unionization doesn't just mean nobody can get fired, even, and that means even for workers, you know, um, sometimes people do deserve to be fired or removed from, a, from a company, right? Um, whether they're being hostile to people around them or whatever, it's not about just making sure no one can get fired. And especially we shouldn't have any sympathy for bosses who are literally stealing the value of people's labor away from them and pocketing that money themselves. Cause ultimately, you know, with a Bobby Kotick or whatever, that $30 million he makes every year, it doesn't come from nowhere. It doesn't appear out of the thin air, right? That $30 million comes directly 
from the value that we create from the product of our labor. It, he does not generate $30 million of value every year, and that's why he, go, he goes home at the end of the year with $30 million. That $30 million comes directly from the wages, the stolen wages, of workers in his company who don't get to see the actual value and profit that they create because it gets sucked up by the C-suite and sucked up by the shareholders and things. Um, so understanding that dynamic is essential in understanding that the relationship between workers and our bosses is inherently always going to be contradictory, and we have to organize with that in mind. And so being concerned about firing a wealthy boss who doesn't give a shit about his workers seems like priority number 10 billion when it comes to how we go about fixing this industry. That is never going to be my first concern. It's just, oh gosh, another thing that I I saw today that was so incredibly frustrating is there's just like, I think this fear mongering that kind of comes with people who are like anti-union. And one of the things that I kept seeing was like, you know, oh, if we if we establish a union, um, then that means that workers are obviously going to be paid more, which seems like a good thing. But this comes at the cost of like, where is the money going to come from? The money is going to come from the resources that go into making your games and it's going to come from uh, like the consumers, the people who are paying because you're going to have to pay more. And it's insane that that's where some people are, are thinking this comes from when you have people who are literally making $30 million. And that's just the top dog. That's not counting the person who's making $28 million, the person who's making $20, $20 million, the person who's making 18 You know what I mean? Yeah. And, like, and in, the, in their defense, that seems like really clear logic, right? You know, mm -hmm. it costs a certain amount of money to create a thing in this case, video games. Video games cost a certain amount because you need to take in some profit to account for the expenses of the like actual creation of the, the product. And then that goes back into the company to pay for wages, to pay people to make things, and on and on and on. It's a very clear logic. But yeah, like you said, the problem is th that isn't where... That's not how the money actually flows. What is actually happening is we, the workers, create video games... We sell those video games, and the profit that comes off of that, a, a certain small portion comes back to the workers in terms of wages to keep making video games, but a larger portion typically gets cut off from that profit and given to the C-class and given to shareholders. Um, so that profit actually gets divided into kind of two streams of money, one to the workers, which is much smaller to keep just the lights on and keep people making games to make more and more profit. And then the bulk of the profit goes to the employers and the bosses. And so the idea is not to put the financial burden on, uh, to, to put the financial burden on game players and, and consumers. Um, the struggle is not to add cost to the product for consumers. The idea is to make the stream of funding going to our bosses and our executives much smaller and make the pool of funding from the profits going to the workers much larger. Because again, we are the ones actually creating the games. We are designing them. We are creating the art. We are QA testing them and making sure they work well. We're the people building communities of players. We are the people writing stories that move people, right? We're the people writing music and playing music that appears in the games. We're, we're the people who voice characters in the games, right? We make that game. The executives don't do any of that. Um, all they do is decide 
how we can extract a little bit of, of that profit cut to the workers more and more every year and make the profit share to the shareholders and sea level more and more every year. Well, you know, and I also would say, and Caitlin even brought this up before we recorded too, because I was talking to her about this and how, or Caitlin, Caitlin said, you know, also people who work on games are humans. <laughs> and if that means that you have to pay $10 more for a game and people actually make money, I feel like we should also be okay with that too. Sure. And there are certain, you know, uh, business models and games where, Frankly, yeah, people aren't paying enough for the product being made because there's a certain, you know, standard cost for different types of games. And maybe people are underpaying mm -hmm. for certain types of games. And at the end of the day, people making a decent living and having decent working conditions will always be more important than people having a slightly cheaper video game. But ultimately, um, unionization can improve the conditions of the workers and prove uh, pr uh, you know, improve the salaries of workers while not putting a burden on the consumer typically. So, and, and I would also go in addition to that, unionization can also create a higher level of quality for the games, right? Because um, just imagine like if people aren't, you know, <laughs> forming PTSD and anxiety and having like massive sleep deprivation and people aren't struggling outside of work and people aren't being or underpaid, um, while making games, if people are just living happy, normal, well-developed lives, they will make better, more well-developed games as well. And so having a better, more mature, more respected, more well-taken-care-of workforce through unionization will naturally bring about better, higher-quality games. Um, it's just how this tends to work. Um, so, you and know. Oh, go ahead. I say like on top of that too, it's like, I mean, if you have more revenue going to a studio, that means you can hire even more people. Yeah. And I'm of the mind that the more, the more people you have, the different, like different voices, the more talent Absolutely. you have in there and creativity and diversity, you're going to get something so much better. Um, But a lot of this comes down to like management issues, right? Like people aren't like crunch and all of that as the result of people not planning right. So like if you could allocate more resources and time and like, people and manage things better things would be more streamlined right like that's in theory at least yeah i mean if more of our profits and the value of our labor weren't being vacuumed up by our executives we could actually put that towards yeah paying more people paying people to work on things over a longer period of time to make sure that they get completed to their best uh quality level yeah no you're totally right although i would say I feel like the last year or so, I've heard a lot of people say, um, and sometimes even I've said it, uh, what you said, which is, um, you know, uh, when when game developers have to crunch, that's a failure of management or a failure of production. And sometimes that is the case. It certainly is. Um, and I come from a production background. Um, sometimes people genuinely do a bad job of planning the production and people have to unnecessarily crunch. But actually, a lot of these companies also intentionally plan to crunch because if workers give up any ground and, you know, give the, give up their hand and, and, and indicate that, yes, we're willing to crunch, then the, the production team and management will start expecting that. They'll start saying, oh, well, we crunched on the last game. Why not just plan to crunch on this game, too? Um, why not aggressively put our... Um, our launch date like six months before when an actual healthy schedule would 
put our launch date and we can just make sure to like crunch and save a little bit of money and get the get the product at the door a little faster it becomes part of the established like production kind of processes and decisions of a studio sometimes so sometimes crunch is the product of kind of frankly good <laughs> good in the sense of like well-planned and executed project management but sometimes it's also bad poor poorly managed project management as well so um it's kind of like this interesting dynamic um we were talking about quality and unionization and like something that was really kind of eye-opening to me was um i was talking to my friend emily who um, was a narrative designer at telltale until the the studio closed and she was talking about how that studio kind of had a death knell hanging over its head for the last like year or two because the management refused to allow the designers and the writers to kind of continue to innovate on the form and the management instead of you know taking risks creatively and financially they wanted to kind of double down on being really conservative using the same engine using the same design from game to game and the writers and the and the narrative designers all wanted to push on that and continue to innovate but because they didn't have a proper you know hand on the steering wheel as it were because they didn't have any leverage in the workplace um the creativity of that studio stagnated because of management right because management could just bully them into making the same game over and over which ultimately yeah the community will start dwindling your player base will start dwindling the success of your products won't always stay popular right and and she was saying something really interesting which is like if we had been unionized and we had any voice and sense of power in the workplace if we had any sense of being able to control the actual direction of the studio and again these are the people who actually make the games if the workers had control over the studio in any way we could have prevented that we could have pushed for innovation we could have pushed for more creatively challenging games and continuing to develop um new engines and and things like that and and they just couldn't because the management class just rolled right over them for the last like few years and yeah the studio closed because of that so unionization in some ways can help increase the stability and longevity of a company and improve the quality of the games too it's 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 a multifaceted tool that can do a lot for workers, game players, and the industry in general. And it's so frustrating, too, because it's like you see a lot of times people will say, oh, capitalism and, you know, and free markets, that's what keeps that's what keeps people innovating. It's that competition with one another. That's what makes things great because you're constantly striving to be better. But at the same time, capitalism right here like very very clearly is the reason why this studio why good is good enough you know what i mean why they can't do more because ultimately it puts money in people's pockets so why not stop you know why why innovate why let people do things that they want to do and have creativity and like foster an environment where like people can make things they really deeply care about and things that people will love in in new experiences when you can you can just be done with it yeah i really can't argue with that (laughs) the literal (laughs) capital financial interests that ran that company also ran and ran it into the ground destroyed the creativity of the company and stagnated the the studio until it collapsed you're totally right um just having a purely like finance driven view on how companies should be run destroys them It, it runs them straight into the ground um and especially in an industry that's based on creativity and creating work that 
is essentially art in the games industry, right? Just like in film or TV or music or whatever, um, having that profit and financial kind of first attitude is, is, is totally misplaced and ultimately has this kind of paradoxical nature like you just described. And so then I guess what you were just talking about made me kind of think, I've seen folks talking about too a lot how with Telltale the situation, they could have had more creative freedom if they had had the union because they were being kind of crushed essentially by corporate greed. Um, But I've seen a lot of folks being kind of upset because it seems like the conversation around unions and labor and stuff is... um at least in the mainstream, isn't addressing, like, indie folks as much and, like, the burnout and, like, the weird fucked up labor conditions that they've had to go under. So I guess I wanted to see, like, what what the conversation looks like around that, especially because going indie is always kind of framed as, like, oh, this is your way to be creative and free, but then it seems like there's a lot less protections, even less protections, because they are indie and they are their own bosses or their freelancers or their contractors or whatever. Well, and to even throw my 10 second thing before we we like actually address that, I just want to say, too, when we were talking about um, what people are willing to pay for games, my first thought, because I naturally I went to AAA and I thought about, oh, the $60 to the $70 like price jump that people don't want to see. But then, you know, uh, Emma mentioned indie games or like games that are, you know, aren't at that $60 mark. And I thought about how many times I've heard friends or people I know be like, oh, yeah, but I won't pay more than $5 for that. I'll wait till it's on sale on Steam. Like, I won't pay more than $10 for that. I'll wait for it. Well, till, I'll wait till it's on sale. Um, and yeah, like, ooh. So it's, it's just like a whole different ballpark with indie developers. So I'm curious to hear what Emma has to say now, but I just wanted to throw that out there. Yeah, that's all. That's all really on point. Um, yeah. So, I mean, ultimately, this labor movement has to also take into con- into consideration the the perspectives and needs um that face our our fellow workers in the indie space and in the smaller kind of like double uh, a single a studio spaces as well and mobile game spaces as well um but yeah focusing in on indie games um they definitely have a role to play in all this you know uh, a large portion of our membership at game workers unite is um based out of that kind of indie freelancer um industry space um so while it might not follow kind of the same kind of typical organizing trajectory of say like organizing an established studio um in the like triple a space just for example um there are things to be to be benefited from having a comprehensive uh labor movement um some of those things is uh unionization in general is uh, has a, an effect of you know kind of a, a tide rising all boats essentially right um industries where there's a prominent amount of unionized labor doesn't just positively impact the conditions and like salaries and and value of labor in unionized studios but it also raises uh the value of the labor and conditions of people in non-unionized studios um this happens in essentially all industries where unionization becomes prominent um even ununionized places um non-union workplaces will benefit from that um and so that means you know rates can rise across um across an industry and that can include freelancers you know in what they charge um and you know god there's just so much <laughs> um i mean so um you might not have like single workplace campaigns in a small indie studio, 
but the labor movement also can bring up conversations around um maybe having a traditional corporation or LLC um for uh, a small studio maybe isn't isn't as effective as say like a co-op a workers co-op structure right where everyone could be democratic and everyone shares in the ownership of the games and the in the in the in the in the team essentially um and so I'll, we've been doing a lot of work around helping um small and mid-sized studios uh transition to being worker-owned co-ops where it's a democratic workforce where everyone has a say in the direction of the company and frankly, a lot of studios already have kind of informal democratic structures like that where everyone has a voice, but it's nice to put that into paper and really put those values in the very core of the team and the company, right? So we've been involved in a lot in that kind of stuff. Um, you know, uh, co-ops like, um, you know, Motion Twin, uh, which made um dead cells um and and scott benson's uh co-op which just recently founded um scott benson the creative night in the woods um you know ted anderson of pixel pushers union 512 which is a worker co-op all the all those people have been involved in our movement and have, we've been developing a resource to help small studios and freelancers uh form worker co-ops um and then beyond that you know uh there's there's a long history of unions helping with um this is more a US centric thing because we don't have uh, kind of nationalized healthcare but um you know if you take you know film workers which oftentimes they're kind of they kind of act as individual freelancers and especially with SAG-AFTRA which is the the actors and voice actors guild um they often are kind of independent independent freelancers essentially flitting from project to project studio to studio and um being a part of the union means uh they have access to a floating healthcare plan through the union that follows them from job to job so they can have a safe stable um healthcare uh plan even though their jobs are kind of unstable inherently by the nature of it um, and things like that can also come back to um, not just floating healthcare plans, but again, rising the standard of pay, rising the standard of conditions, um, having a level of solidarity with your fellow workers, even if you don't work in the same workplace, having solidarity um, for indie developers and freelancers across the, an industry can do a lot. It means we can like face challenges that are otherwise difficult to face, um, whether that be like social issues or um, financial issues or labor issues that freelancers and indie developers face. Um, even though they might be kind of dispersed to the wind, they can come together and um, still help better the conditions of everybody um, using their collective voice and their collective power. Um, and yeah, so that could also include things like um, negotiating for better situations with various platforms and storefronts when otherwise they'd be kind of these atomized and isolated smaller developers who might not have a lot of power, but when they come together as an industry of indie workers and freelancers, they can have a real collective voice and actually make some uh, demands to improve their collective conditions. There's, it, I could just go on for a little bit too long, but um, <laughs> there's so much that can be done um, for these people as well. And so it's super important to have their voices, uh, you know, with us and among us in this labor movement absolutely and at the very at the very like base level i feel like of all of this because i feel like a lot of people who are kind of anti-union are the same people who kind of hold on 
they're usually more conservative people. You know what I mean? Like they hold into those those more traditional values. I'm just calling it what it is. I don't care. <laughs> Actually, can I push um, back on that real briefly? Yeah. Yeah, you can. Absolutely. Um, so <laughs> that so one of the first things um, I teach people in organizer training um, and so just, I guess, uh, disclosure, I'm I'm very much of the left, but um, uh, one of the first things I always teach people in organizer training 101 is you really cannot judge how someone's going to feel about a union or the concept of unionization or collective action based off of their stated political um, kind of views on the world. Um, I, I, in, you know what? That makes sense. I can't tell you how many times people have been like, oh, well, um, Adam or whoever, I know he's like a socialist or something, so he's definitely on board. And then it turns out like weeks later, you should never have assumed that because it turns out his mom is weirdly anti-union or had a bad run-in with like a, a pipe fritters union or something. And now the whole family's anti-union. And sometimes like people mm-hmm. are like, oh, well, I know, I know like Marcy is like super hardline conservative. Um, she would never be down for the union, but you get to talking to her and like, she might really readily be, be like ready to talk about issues she has with the boss. Right. She might be totally down um, to fight mm-hmm. to improve the conditions. Like, and, and so what I really often stress to people is like, one, don't make assumptions about how people feel about unionization. And ultimately, the job of a good organizer is always about learning how to ask good open-ended questions, really listen, like actively listen to your fellow workers, find out what's bothering them, finding out what the core emotional thing behind their problems at work and in life are, and helping to find together collective solutions to solve those problems. Because unionization is really about creating a culture of care and support among the workers in your in your studio and in your company um, to help improve the conditions of everybody. And and that happens regardless of politics. That happens regardless of, you know, whatever labels we carry around day to day. No, you're absolutely right. And I, I appreciate you kind of kind of calling me out on that because I feel like I tend to just from a place of frustration, you know what I mean? Like it comes in and like that's kind of like what you would think. And so that's where my mind goes with it. But I understand. And like you don't want to make anybody feel like they're not invited or it's not for them when like it's like the, a union's base idea is being for the people. Absolutely. So, you know, it's so I, I appreciate that. Yeah. But I guess what I was going to say is at at its base, I mean, a union is coming together and like assembling and petitioning you know what i mean which are like core tenets of what our our government is founded on um and and just basic like liberties that people have so it's it's baffling to me that people are against them when like if people want them they should be allowed to do it (laughs) yeah it's tough i mean yeah at, at its absolute barest unionization is about giving workers power giving workers a chance to vote and share their opinions and together collectively making decisions that better their conditions, better their workplace and help shape the direction of the work that they do. It's about instilling democracy in a workplace. Cause if you, if you mm-hmm. think about the nature of a company where people on the top make decisions and they dictate suddenly how people's lives play out, how much money you have, if you can make rent, if this week, if you don't get to see your kids this week, um, that's not a democratic structure. It's not what anyone really 
considers themselves to stand for. Um, anyone who, you know, values any sense of democracy and shared kind of cooperative decision-making, that a company is not democratic. Um, and unionization introduces democracy into the workplace. When everyone gets a hand on the ball, when everyone gets to have a seat at the table, when everyone gets to make uh, the decisions of the company together, that's actual democracy. Not just it's democracy is not just a concept that exists in politics or in theory or in ideas. Mm -hmm. It's a tangible, real, material thing. And unionization gives democracy, and it creates democracy, and it demands democracy in the workplace. And that's what it's all about. Um, at its absolute barest. That's what it is. And, you know, a lot of people, you know, bristle when people talk about unions and unionization because there's a long history, a long messy history with unionization. There's a long history of um, employers and bosses and financial interests smearing labor organizers and smearing the labor history that we come from. And, you know, it is a messy situation, and sometimes people do genuinely have bad experiences with certain unions. But, um, yeah, as long as the focus is always on giving, you know, the power back to workers and helping raise up their ability to, you know, help make their own decisions, that's that's always going to be a massive success, and that's always what the priority should be made. Um, and, uh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it's tough. And so, like, we have to do a lot of that kind of, like, myth-busting. All those anti-union myths, we have to work on that. We have to do a better job of educating our fellow workers. Um, mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, even if we don't say the word union, if we're just talking to our coworkers and really genuinely listening to them and sharing in their pains and in their concerns and in their worries and helping to find solutions together and care for one another and support one another... Even if we never talk about the word union, good things will come out of that. And actual genuine worker power will come of that. Um, and that alone is deeply valuable. Reintroducing that level of care and that level of democracy, regardless of calling it a union or not. That's, that's powerful and important stuff. Absolutely. I mean, you're, you have an amazing job. You, you make humans feel human again. And I thank you for that. Yeah, I mean, and it can be really difficult, right? I had a um one of the most common tools an organizer has is what's known as a one-on-one, -on -one, which is like um essentially a one-on-one -on -one conversation, a private conversation with a fellow coworker um where you talk about, you know, how work is going and asking questions about their life and how things are making them feel about work and all that stuff and trying to find solutions and that can get really emotionally real and really raw really fast cuz um mm -hmm. Even though it's really difficult and it's really all about finding that emotional core, like what's motivating a person, what things are weighing on them and how can we really fix this stuff and how can I help this person? Um, it's about putting others before you. And, you know, I was in a one-on-one -on -one just last week and we broke down crying in the middle of it. And that's really common, actually. It's a weird, tricky, messy job. But it's important because, you know, not only because of the results that happen in the workplace and in people's lives that ripple out when people feel empowered and listened to and cared for by their community and their coworkers, but also just, you know, sorry, yeah, it's like really, I don't know, it's like, it's really important because we're like unlearning so many of the boundaries and barriers that we've been taught in our society where 
we kind of just go through the day, you know, with a little bit of cynical bite and a little bit of like sarcastic distance from our emotions and kind of coldly laughing about, yeah, you know, like gotta stay like four hours late and I'm gonna, you know, not gonna be able to see my kids tonight. That's how it is. But like actually taking a moment to be like, no, that's like bad. We shouldn't have to live like this. We should be able to tuck our kids in at night. And a lot of it is about unlearning those things and working through those boundaries and learning how to like really openly and honestly talk with our fellow humans. That's that's a lot of what organizing is actually. And so it can be really difficult and really emotionally draining work, but um it it, it is really important. It's super important. Mm-hmm. It's like you can never underestimate the power of like someone just since like genuinely looking you in the eyes and asking like are you okay right you know and like that can that can open up a lot yes and um somebody needs to especially like it like at work I mean so many people you put on when you go to work you you put on a certain mask you know and like you you have to be a certain way and and you have to and so it's like to have somebody be like hey you can put that down for a second and let's talk and make sure you're okay like that's just such a good thing to have absolutely just we all bottle things up so much and it's impossible not to right like sometimes you genuinely just have to make it day to day you just have to make it through the eight hours at work or whatever you just have to make it through the shift but i don't know sometimes you gotta let that mask fall down and be pretty real and it's kind of interesting this um kind of relates to something that is really difficult about organizing which is a lot of people feel like there's so much apathy there's so much lack of movement like things are going nowhere and it's so hard to change things and it's so hard to change culture and conversations and the way people think about like things like unionization or labor conditions just as an example and so a lot of organizers when they're when they're new they often feel like the number one thing that's in gets in the way of their organizing work is apathy so many people have apathy but something a fellow organizer once told me, which was really surprising at first, um, but I think is now true. She told me, apathy is a myth. Nobody is apathetic. And I'm like, what are you talking about? That's like the number one issue in Roadblock in every campaign I've ever worked on. What are you talking about? Of course, people have apathy. It's huge. It's like all over the culture. And she was like, you just haven't listened to them yet. You haven't heard the thing that makes them mad. You haven't heard the thing that's been irritating them, but they've been hiding from everyone. You haven't like asked the right question yet. No one is apathetic. They just need to be heard and listened to and felt like someone is caring. And so being an organizer is about finding the ways to care for people and find the ways that people's hurts can be, you know, remedied and stuff. And so, yeah, I don't know. It's all kind of this big, messy social work essentially but um it also produces these kind of like tangible results and improvements for workers lives it's a really interesting weird position to be in sorry i kind of went off on a big tangent right there so (laughs) yeah no i think i think like humanizing what you all do is important too because i feel like it's still the conversations around labor end up still feeling kind of like worky and not like 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 it still kind of feels like cogs in the machine mm. versus like people and i feel like especially for you all because you're the organizers and not seen as the workers even though you're also the yeah workers. we are 
I, I mean, yeah, I get paid $13 an hour and I work at a game studio and I bust my ass every day, every week. And, but yeah, I'm also an organizer. Yeah, you're right. People often see us as like rabble rousers or people who are just like super focused on like numbers or statistics and improving the industry and all these things. Either we're too cold or we're too emotional or whatever. But yeah, at the end of the day, that's n- neither of those things are really quite accurate to what what the actual role of an organizer is. So yeah, it's it it is something that you know what frankly we need to do a better job of explaining you know who we are and what we do and what does it mean to organize. Because um, yeah, people don't quite understand that. They think it's just you know people who hold the flag and everyone rallies around them, but it, that's not at all how this works. Yeah, well, it often seems like people think that the unions are like an outside organization right. that's coming in, and it's it's not. That's a really <laughs> common rhetoric you hear bosses using when a, a, an organizing campaign starts to take flight in a studio. You often hear talk about, well, you know, you don't want this third party coming in and getting between you and your work or like ruining the creativity or adding bureaucracy, and it's like, it betrays a lack of understanding about what unionization is all about. Ultimately, the union is not some third party coming in and like dictating what you have to do. The union is you. The union is you and your coworkers standing up together in solidarity and saying, enough is enough. We work our asses off and we deserve better than what we're being given. We're going to demand that and we're going to take that. Um, that's what unions are. Unions are you and your coworkers caring for one another, supporting for one another, you know? Um, it's not a third party. It just isn't. And to say it is really belies a lack of understanding, which is an opportunity for education, right? Like, that means we just have more and more people to educate about these things um, and more and more conversations to be had. But um, that's the nature of it. It's just endless work, endless education and, and talking and conversations. Yeah. Um, I feel like that's something that people don't realize, too, is it's just like a lot of chat and like not in a patronizing <laughs> way, but just in like it's a lot of no, talking it's true. and like figuring things out. I mean, the number one thing I do is I hop on phone calls with people. I meet people, you know, at a coffee shop to talk about how things are going. Um, we hang out in people's bedrooms and cry about things going on at work. Right. It's it's all about talking. It's about social skills and 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 yeah learning to communicate that's what this is all about oh yeah that's something that everybody needs to get better at imo (laughs) um i think we're kind of starting to wrap up but there is one more thing that i wanted to ask you about if you'll indulge me (laughs) um it's something that happened today on the internet that was a very interesting conversation to watch um but someone um some rando, I don't know who it was, but then like a a game dev picked it up and they were talking about if it, whether or not it was immoral for Jason Schreier to report on the uh, recent ArenaNet layoffs. And um, because I guess they communicated those layoffs through a company email that not everybody had seen at the time of publishing. And Jason Schreier was basically saying, you know, like, as soon as we found out that that email went out, we published. So like people knew like we in theory were not breaking this to them but even if they were like that doesn't really seem like a moral issue of like letting people know sooner rather than later Mm. um 
So I guess I wanted your your take on that. And if because in my perspective, it seems like it would be better to know that you're going to lose your job sooner than when your company wants you to find out. But I don't know if there's gray area that I'm like not aware. of. Yeah. Um. So, I mean, I was at work all day and I just got little scraps of this um, during my breaks. But um, yeah, you know, I mean, it's not super clear cut. There certainly are some workers who don't want to be dreading for a week or two before layoffs hit, wondering if they're the ones going to be cut. There are some people who want to know ASAP that this kind of thing is going down. Um, it's an issue that I, I think game developers will inherently be kind of divided on, and I would respect anyone of any persuasion on that. Um, one thing I would say is I, it is tough. It really is tough. But I think I probably err on the side of having that communication of impending layoffs sooner rather than later as later as well, um, for multiple reasons. One, I think a lot of developers would want to know to have a heads up and you know start prepping portfolios just in case, just starting to reach out to friends just in case, looking around at job boards just in case, um, just so they can have a little padding. And as some, this is coming from someone who. I've been laid off now twice from studios because it's so it's such a common occurrence. Um, one because a studio went under, and one because they downsized because they lost funding. Um, uh, and um, and I re- I found out just the day of. It was just I walk into work like any other day, and uh, turns out I can't make rent this week. You know, that's just how it goes. Um, that's just no, it is horrific, and you know, certainly other countries have better protections for workers in terms of just being suddenly laid off but we certainly don't um which is something unions can help fight for um but uh, i would have preferred even if i didn't know if it was me who was going to make the cut or not even if i knew that i was going to get fired i would love to have known a week or two in advance so i could start prepping for things having a little security and backup just in case um and then kind of on top of this i think um I would also say I think it's really beneficial for um for management in terms of like if that kind of thing gets leaked and it's like hey yeah uh arena nuts is going to have layoffs pretty soon um according to an internal email or something it kind of signals to management that they can't just cloak everything in in kind of like shadows and daggers right they can't get away with just sneaking up on the workers like this it keeps them a little bit more on their toes and i think that's always a good thing um and and another thing is like having the heads up means organizers both in and outside of the company can start having those difficult conversations asap and start planning for what happens when the layoffs hit um and of course i won't talk anything about specifics of this case but um you know it's always a conversation where like people get to work and there's a lot of mobilization around layoffs and having that heads up means we can do so much more so much sooner um to help support people um so there's a lot of uh, benefits to finding out early but i also totally respect people who you know maybe don't want to live with the anxiety of wondering if they're going to have a job in a week or two um so i super respect that as well but i think i i think in general i err on the side of making sure people know what's coming down the tracks um i'd rather know that i'm about to get run over by a car um <laughs> And I have a chance to maybe jump out of the way or duck or something than just, oh, I'm now being hit by a car, you know? So, 
Yeah, I definitely like because I mean we do we're the media side of mm. things, so this is relevant to our interests and our practices. And it was just interesting to see that conversation framed as an is this moral kind of conversation. Yeah, I don't think it's about abstracted morals. Yeah, well, and I was just kind of shocked because it's like I don't see how warning people could be immoral. Like, I get, I could, I totally get the what you're saying about like the anxiety of things and like you know not wanting to be needlessly made afraid, maybe. But I was also caught up because people were the dev in question was saying that the people that he was talking to were saying like, oh, it was going to be like a relatively like okay layoff, and I was like, but that's still like a layoff. That's not that's still not going to be easy or something that's like, like just cause they handled it kind of better. Like you still have to plan like job hunting is basically a job. Like, yeah. no, I think you're right. Yeah. I think if there was any question of whether or not the layoffs were going to happen, maybe it was like a 50, 50 chance or there's discussions about it. I think sharing that information could be risky cause you do risk like, you know, uh, getting people, uh, anxious and, and riled up over possibly nothing. But when you know it's happening, I think it's good to give people a warning. And I think in terms of like moral arguments or, or what have you, I think whenever a conversation like this gets thrown into questions of morality or ideals or, you know, kind of abstracted from reality, I think once you've stopped talking about material tangible, identifiable, trackable, cause and effect situations, I think you're losing track of the conversation. And so mm -hmm. I, I think it's more important to talk about the specifics of a situation and the specifics of what will happen if we talk about this information before it's announced by the company. What are the actual benefits and actual drawbacks and not just is it good or bad to say information that is maybe not yours to share um it mm -hmm. because there's nothing really tangible to talk about um we always have to, i think we really need to make sure to root it in the in the tangible situations that are affecting people right now um around this situation yeah well i mean it seemed like from reading the threads and stuff it seemed like they were attempting to do their due diligence on that but it's super tricky and i think it goes back to an episode that we did kind of about like leaking and stuff and how how that works and how it's effective but i think in this case it's like if you're a reporter and a news person like your job is to give the news and this is something that like i mean canceled games or leaked games or whatever i'm sure have their own effects on the industry and the workers but to have a bunch of jobs just be pulled out from under you i feel like is a little bit more serious of a thing that's worth talking about yeah and ultimately it's not really it's not jason's job to necessarily think about the repercussions of his work theoretically his work is just about yeah sharing information and spreading information mm -hmm. um i mean i think journalists absolutely should think about the repercussions of their information but it's not necessarily his job to make those kinds of like quote-unquote moral decisions it's more just maybe it's a conversation we should have as a community whether or not this kind of thing is beneficial and then maybe we can adapt in terms of like how our press handles such information moving forward but i think beyond that it's i don't think it's a thing one can really blame jason for doing because he's really just doing the job 
that he's got, you know? So, mm-hmm. anyway. Wow, thank you for that. And all yeah. of us, thank you for talking to us. Yeah, this for has sure. been a very enlightening conversation. I feel like I learned a lot. <laughs> well, I'm happy to talk anytime about this stuff. Um, something I always really emphasize to my fellow organizers is um, really, I think a successful organizer should be, you know, insatiable in their hunger to constantly learn and continue to educate themselves on on these things but also we should be just dauntless in our ability to explain patiently to people and uh, raise up the education of people around us and have these conversations um we should be inexhaustible exhaustible in our way of like sharing this kind of information and this kind of work um because this has to happen and we have to do it with you know, as much energy and commitment as possible. Yeah, that's awesome. I hope you all are also getting the opportunity to take care of yourselves. I know it's yes, hard. Yeah, I but... mean, gosh, yeah, working a full-time job and then essentially working another full-time job, trying to just doing it all for just just the pure act of service and helping people. Um, and then on top of that, taking your time to be here with us tonight and, and you know, reaching. I guess just different like, you know, listeners and, and players and stuff like that when you when you do these podcasts. Um, I, I really appreciate it. It's a lot of work. Um, and I, I do hope that you get time to rest. <laughs> well, it's my absolute pleasure. And I'm I'm really grateful that you had me on. And um, it was really lovely talking to both of you as well. So thank you for letting me talk to your audience and things. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah, of course. I think they will be very excited to hear what you have to say. Oh, absolutely. Um, so before we wrap up, Emma, do you want to go ahead and plug where folks can find you and where they can find all your work and how they can support you and all that kind of stuff and whatever else you want to plug on? Sure. So, I mean, most importantly, I would say um, I would encourage anyone um, to follow um, at GameWorkers on Twitter. That's the main Twitter handle for the kind of international Game Workers Unite organization and movement. Um, you can learn a lot more about the work we're doing and how to help improve the conditions of workers around the world in our industry um, at Game Workers on Twitter. Um, you can also find more of our resources and literature and information about unions and things we're up to on our website at gameworkersunite.org. Um, and then personally, people can find me on Twitter at Emma Kanema. Um, which I imagine can be in the show notes, but Kinema is spelled like cinema with mm-hmm. a K. Um, and then folks, if they're interested, they can help, um, you know, kind of support my organizing work on Patreon, again, at Emma Kinema. Um, I am trying to actively phase out um, my professional game development work and do organizing full-time, but I, I just can't do it for free. I, I live paycheck to paycheck, and so... Um, a lot of really generous people have come together to help uh, to the best of their ability um, allow me to organize full-time as much as possible. Um, and so if people are interested in supporting uh, that as well, they can yeah find me on Patreon as well. Oh, I guess this is my other journalistic uh, disclaimer that I do support Emma on <laughs> Patreon. <laughs> so she's not a paid guest in this moment, but I do, I do give her money. Every and it's much appreciated. Um, yeah, of course. Uh, gotta put your money where your mouth is, you know? <laughs> um, all right. So I think that's going to do it for us this time. Jess, where can people find you? 
Everyone can find me at Jessicogs on Twitter. It's going to be J-E-S-S-A-C-O-G-S. All right. And you can find me at C-G and 8-R's on Twitter. <laughs> Falling Around is a product of your geeky. It's a terrible, terrible app. People <laughs> voted to keep it. So here we are. Um... You t- <laughs> Palin Around is a product of Your Geeky Gal Pal, which you can find on all social media at Your Geeky Gal Pal and YourGeekyGalPal.com. If you want to hang out with us, uh, join our Discord. The link is in the show notes, as are all of the articles we use. Emma's Twitter will be there. Her Patreon will be there. Um, our Twitters will be there. All that other good stuff. Uh, we also have a merch store, so you should come buy a shirt or a hat or um, a crop top. Um, they're very cute and (laughs) thank you i love them so much i want everyone to have them i think Um, mine is supposed to come tomorrow and honestly it's going to be the highlight of my whole week please send me so many pictures oh i will please (laughs) um oh and please for the love of god rate and review us (laughs) on whatever your your thing is because we're a good show and it helps people see us and tell your friends because word of mouth is a big deal um but yeah that's that's it have a have a good day or night where whatever whatever time you're listening um (laughs) yeah bye solidarity (laughs) y'all Welcome to 294 Note Streak, the best idea for a podcast of all time. We use a bracket to rank every song that's ever been in a Guitar Hero game. That's pretty much it. That's the whole idea. My name's Joe. I'm Riley. We do that thing we just said every... mm, two weeks? We rank it on how much we like the song and if it makes a fun chart to play. Is 294 an equally divisible number for a bracket? It's not! (laughs) Is Thunder Kiss 65 the best white zombie song? Can anything topple Hangar 18 in this race to the top? Will Pat Benatar's Heartbreaker defeat Michael Jackson's Beat It? Yes. <laughs> yeah, spoiler. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> Should Fat Lip be in Guitar Hero? <laughs> Find out by listening to 294 <laughs> Note Streak on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or a better app. And remember, enjoy music. <laughs>